Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ball sits up for Matt Cash on the half volley. How's your left foot? How's your left foot? He falls on his hoop instead. <laughs> this is Paul McGrath. You're listening to the Villa Podcast. That morning sky gave me a look. So I left while you were sleeping. That's all it took. And the old saying goes, die with your boots on. Dean Smith treated us to the most Aston Villa rendition of that at St Mary's on Friday night. If you're going down, go down the only way you know how. Die with Keenan Davis on. (laughs) I was wondering if that was a bit too harsh on Davis and then I saw him give out to Jacob Ramsey for passing the ball to his feet. Started giving out, scolding him. What are you doing? I'm not that type of player. Don't play it to my feet. (laughs) 1-0 Southampton. Five in a row. At least, at least we've stopped our average if we conceding three goals a game. That's probably the only positive we can take from tonight's defeat. But Liam, they're looking like a team in serious need of some fresh ideas. Yeah, I mean, and even just to have an idea would be a good start. Never mind a fucking fresh idea. Going into that game tonight. Everybody on their dog knows what Hassan Huddle plays. He hasn't changed. He hasn't played. He hasn't changed even after getting beaten nine nil twice. And with the pressure we were coming, we were under coming into that game. I think it was an interesting decision to throw out a four two three one, especially when we had seen in the previous game that Bailey and Bundia can't defend, and we had seen in the previous three years that El Ghazi can't defend. And if you add add to that the fact that Nakamba would fit so well into the 15-16 team and he's the player we've entrusted with holding it all together. Like marvellous Nakamba is our rock. And watching John McGinn play at six is like watching the fucking Saw franchise. <laughs> like, we all know that Hassenhut is going to send out a 4-4-2. You're asking for trouble with a 4-2-3-1. And with those players, it really is a two and a three in midfield. And yeah. that means that Nakamba and McGinn are on their own against four tight midfielders. And even if Target and Cash can give them a hand, it means that Nakamba and McGinn are on their own against two people that can actually play centre midfield. And of course, Target and Cash couldn't help them out because Bailey put in the most disgraceful defensive performance I can remember seeing from a winger. And El Ghazi was playing with all the grace of a dog flying a fucking helicopter. (laughs) Yeah, it's so disappointing. It felt like, you know, for the most part of these three years that we had something good going on. Before the summer, mostly. Like, there was a great spirit in the team. Everybody looked like they were having good fun. They were all working for each other. And And they were playing really well. They were playing above themselves. For most parts as well, like considering the the options that we had and considering what was going on, then he took 
well, he didn't take Jack Grealish out. Jack Grealish left, and that sort of ripped the heart out of the whole thing. We lost two of our three main coaches in the summer, replaced them with new coaches. Reports that there's been fallouts between coaches and players. Reports that Morgan Sanson has fallen out with players. We've brought in new signings, and it just hasn't seemed to gel. There's a few egos that are rolling around the camp now, and you know people's noses are out of joint. People are bickering at each other. The spirit looks dead. It like. Any team is fragile, and I mean that outside of football as well. And Villa were trying to juggle so much change in one summer, and they haven't juggled it well. It actually reminds me of Brendan Rodgers' last year at Liverpool. It was like they had an unbelievable title charge. Everybody was rooting for them. It was exciting. They had something going on there. Suarez left. Gary McAllister came in. I think they brought a new coach in as well. They brought a whole new pile of signings in, didn't get them working, didn't get the best out of them, and the wheels just came off. And it's pretty similar to what's going on at Villa at the minute. Yeah, and like we got away with having John Terry in our background stuff, and we still kept a good atmosphere, even though he was undoubtedly running around trying to shag everything in sight. <laughs> and like if we, if we were able to get through that, how have we ended up in such a bad position? But you can just see it. You can just see... Things aren't right on the pitch. Like the attitude of some of the players absolutely stinks on the pitch. But then there's also just players who who look lost. They don't look like they know what their job is. Yeah. They don't look no, like they know what they're supposed to be doing out in the pitch. And both of those fall on the manager. And he has to help them out. He has to start giving them instructions. They have to know what they're doing on the pitch. And they have to change their fucking attitude. It felt like we were left a lot tonight to just individual magic and I have to tell you our individuals aren't that fucking good (laughs) the few times we turned the ball over and that was like too little we turned it over and it was like right I I hope Bailey can run the pitch here and no he couldn't no matter how often he tried he couldn't run the pitch (laughs) El Ghazi couldn't run the pitch Buendia couldn't control the ball He he got a bit better in the second half but just really devoid I said like we need a fresh ideas. Like the, it was just a team who had no imagination, and yeah, they, they they weren't working together. And and the thing is, we've slagged Solskjaer a lot, and it's so depressing for United fans when you've seen some of his comments of late. You know, when he started batting off tactics talk, and and Dean Smith has gotten a bit of criticism recently about saying it's not about shape, even though then he immediately changed in the three five two when things were going unbelievably bad. He needed to change the shape. Um, but that contrast from the first half to the second half, Paul Merson said afterwards, I think that'll keep him in a job. For me, I'm wondering, why was that not there in the first half yet again? Like, no matter how much Smith tells us that it was only 45 bad minutes against Arsenal in these five losses, it's total bullshit. But no matter how much he says that, like, what happened again in that first half today where Villa were just completely flat and... We were all surprised there were no changes. We'll talk about that later. No changes at halftime. But they came out and they were so much better. And it only lasted maybe about 10, 15 minutes. They were they were in control of the ball and stuff then for most of that half. But like, why why does it just need a word in players' ears? Why was this note that they were passing around not working and needed to come in at halftime and give them new instructions? What was that difference? And again, you're right. That falls on him to get that from minute one. Yeah, it does. And, and to get it from minute one against Southampton should have been easy. Like I said, Southampton played this way every game. It was like getting battered by Leeds last year. It's it's not on. It's disgraceful. You know what they're doing. You know how they're going to set up. You know how they're going to play against you. So come up with a plan. If that doesn't work, that's all right. But you can't just stubbornly go along with it. You're just making two mistakes now. You're compounding it. Make the change. It's okay to be wrong. But once you're wrong, you have to fucking admit it and you have to accept it and you have to then make the change. And fair enough, he might have wanted to get into the changing room to talk to them, to tell them how to do it. But you've got all fucking week to do that. You can tell players two things that they're going to do. This is the system we're going to start with. If that goes fucking nowhere, like I imagine it will do because I'm only playing two midfielders against four, then we're going to change to this system. (laughs) Now that you're sufficiently wound up, <laughs> there were a few incidents in the game. Villa were denied a penalty in the second half when Romeo took so much of Watkins' shirt for so long, it looked like he was trying to change bedclothes on his own. 
<laughs> but like you know, VAR's new boys will be boys approach meant that they weren't interested. And look, to be honest, you know, maybe it should have been a penalty, but I, I don't think Villa deserved an equalizer. Uh, like, it's did it did it stop him from getting the ball? It probably didn't. I mean, that penalty is definitely given four years ago. It's like without a shadow of a doubt, that's given. Last year, it's given with VAR then as well. So before VAR, it was given because they changed the rules. And do you remember the first game of the season where Mike Riley did he get two against Sterling in the same match in the first game of the season? And th- this one, <laughs> I, he's not getting to the ball anyway, and he is pulled, but it's not enough. It's not enough to hold him back. He's bigger and stronger than him, and he just doesn't get to the ball. And then he looks around to say, "Come on, I didn't get to the ball because of that, but it wasn't because of that." <laughs> well, Villa got off uh, the most because El Ghazi should have been sent off. Like it starts, he's on the left wing. It's a terrible idea, and then it's a terrible pass. Matt Target's gone ahead of him, um, and then it's a terrible fucking reaction. Like, e- like it's a terrible reaction, even if it wasn't a yellow card offence, or even if he wasn't on a yellow card already. Like he's he's given the ball away. And then all he's done is just pulled somebody to the ground in in reaction to it. Like, like that should have been a red card. And I'm just so pissed off at it. As I say, regardless of all the cards, it was just lazy. It was useless, and it it was damaging to the team because again, you've just once again like Villa do this all the time when things are going badly. You've let the other team off the hook. You've given them the free. You've pushed the rest of your team back. All momentum is lost. All time is lost. And I hate that. And it was worse because El Ghazi should have seen red because of it. Yeah, and the, the first one is just as bad. I mean, it's exactly the same thing. It's just not as stark because he's using his feet instead of his hands. But, like, you know, the Liveramento just runs past him and he just kicks his ankles really petulantly. He said, oh, fuck you. I'm not running back there. It's it's bad. It's as bad as the second one. And it's an absolutely preposterous, pathetic decision by the referee to not send him off. I mean, there are only two things more pathetic than that. It was how easily El Ghazi let an underage fullback skin him twice. <laughs> yeah, complete, complete cop out. Once again, from the top league in football and the top sport in the world. Uh, one nil, only one goal to talk about. It was Armstrong's un- like unbelievable finish. That must have felt so good. The way he just drop kicked off his left foot and zipped right in like an arrow where he wanted it. Starts off at the halfway line. Emmy Buendia has developed the worst trait I can remember in an Aston Villa jersey. It's a habit of saying, I'll get it, and then not getting it. So, he, he, he like, what he should have done was just stretched out and popped the ball to Bailey. It's broken in between Buendia and Bailey. Buendia says, I'll get it. Bailey goes here and off down the right. Not that that would have mattered. He would have lost it anyway. But... If Buendia just pokes the ball towards him, he'll get it. Instead, he takes two extra steps because he's decided, I need to wind up and just hammer into Ward Price here because he's probably a bit afraid of getting hurt himself. The brave thing to do there wasn't to just try and kick Ward Price in the balls. It was just to try and win the ball and poke it away. You were in position to do it, but uh, he lets Ward Price get there. It's just a big hoof downfield. It breaks off Shea Adams, I think, and it's a good finish. <laughs> like yeah, I'll come back to the Shea Adams incident. I mean, the Sky build-up gave Adam Armstrong a bizarre amount of time, a laughable central piece to the pre-game talk. I mean, if you're spending six or seven minutes talking about Adam Armstrong's struggles, then your pre-game show is too long. <laughs> Schedule an episode of Friends or something. It all starts, and you're right because Buendia can't fucking run. But he is fat, con. His reaction times are scandalous. His pace is non-existent. And his efforts are fucking disgrace. And there's everyone whinging there that he was going to be playing number 10. As if he wasn't an absolute disaster on the wing against West Ham. Yeah. But there's not a hope in hell this lad can play on the wing at this level. He can't run. Yeah. But once he doesn't get to it, then Cash is defending it. like Cash is defending it like the sky had control of the ball. And he was going to Fred a through ball. He was looking at the man, looking back at the ball, checking the distance between himself and Twanzebe, as if he was worried the fucking sky was going to play an eye of the needle pass through the defence. The ball isn't changing direction. Go and get it. Why are you following your man? He's running away from the ball. It's not making it to him. 
It's fallen from the fucking sky. Go attack it. <laughs> I do want to talk about what you're saying about Buendia there, though, because I think you called him fat there, but I, if anything, I think he's he's just so light. You know, and I don't mean like maybe he's carrying a few pounds. I don't know, but I called Norwich before Powder Puff, and I think he sort of is the personification of it. Like he, it reminds me too much of Carlos Gill, Jota, Barry Bannon. You know, he's nice players, and like I, I'm, I'm not bashing small players. I respect Xavi and Iniesta. <laughs> I mean, boys who who seemingly just they're too small for their own body like and they, they don't have that that man strength whatever it is in their own body and he can't cover ground fast enough he's not sharp enough he looks too weak and he, he's often just caught on the ball or losing the ball and he, yeah he looks like an underage player who hasn't played at this level like i i'm shocked at, at how big a step up it looks for him going from norwich to villa because i have to tell you i don't think it's that big a step up at the minute <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone got giddy about it, and he did brilliantly in the championship last year. His numbers were off the scale, but Albert Doma scored 15 goals under fucking Steve Bruce. Jeez. I mean, let's get real about the fucking championship. It's a shit standard. We all know that. Norwich proved that every year they come up. The championship is not, not at it. It's just it's not the same level of football. And maybe it'll take Bundia a bit of time to get there, but 10 games in, I'm not seeing where he's going to get to. It's certainly not going to be where we need him to get to anyway. Like he's, his reaction times, like I said, are, are so slow, it's laughable if you didn't support Aston Villa. And then whenever he does finally react, he can't move his body to get there in time. And it's catching Villa out a lot. Yeah. One question on him, though, and I'd say there's some, there are some people listening to this thinking, like, what what the fuck are you talking about? Like, he, <laughs> We'll go through the Ronnie Rossenthal Award later. Buendia features heavily in it. Like, he is at the centre of a lot of Villa chances and attacks, and he did pick up in the second half, so much so that when Dean Smith took him off then, I was like, ah. You know, there was a stage, a space in the first half, where it was like, he's at this again. Like, there was one time where Villa won the ball back, a couple of nice passes, and they were away. You know, there were people going down both wings, people in front, and it came to Buendia in the centre circle. Heavy touch, loses the ball. Under no pressure, you know, like not enough pressure anyway. And uh, but in the second half, he he looked like he had ideas. He looked like he was knitting things together and he was bringing people into it. And you know, if you look at the highlights package, he looks involved. He looks active. Like what? What do you what do you make of that? I wish he wasn't involved. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the the chances that came to him, he absolutely cocked them up. He just yeah. missed the ball. Hit the ball with the outside of his. With his left, his outside ankle, and just absolutely skinned it out to the outside the post. In the first half, he lost the ball as often as I lost the will to live. Passes, <laughs> overrunning the ball, miscontrolling it. Everything, every way you could lose a ball, Emi Bundia was doing it. There was one in the first half where he runs towards the centre half. He just steps around him like he's a puddle. And Bundia, who is two metres behind the centre half, stops and starts pointing and whinging at Nakamba to close him down. Nakamba is 40 metres away. Even if he was supposed to be closer, he isn't. Are you not going to stand there making a point? And what's your point? That you can't react to changing circumstances? That you can't play the game that's, that's in front of you? That you're a lazy entitled twat? What are you doing? You're standing there throwing his arms near as if he's Cristiano Ronaldo. Emiliano Buendia is not Cristiano Ronaldo. Believe it or not, we have WhatsApp winges coming up. WhatsApp winges, let's go. Number one. The worst thing is that I can believe that El Ghazi just fell to his knees rather than keep chasing after another god awful touch of his. <laughs> uh, I mean, like. Setting aside how disgusting it is and how morally bankrupt it is, like, does this Muppet not know that they've changed the rules? That they've introduced far? That the centre half is a yard away from him? I mean, it was absolutely pathetic. Like This guy, this guy was... He was averaging a bookable offence every 11 minutes in the first half. 
It was off the fucking scales. <laughs> and, he th- and he thinks he can get away with that. I, can't, like, I can't believe that ref bottled it on those two occasions. He gave himself every opportunity to send off. El Ghazi gave him every opportunity to send them off, and the ref just wasn't interested. This happened against Brentford as well, which I think was his last start. I, I can't believe how much he flip-flopped. Like, this is the problem with Villa, especially this year now when things are going badly. You just, you just work your way down the list. Whoever's playing, their stock goes down. Whoever's not playing, their stock goes up. And there I was in the last podcast, crying for Amar el And he comes in, and I remembered against Brentford. I, I think I was praising that he was very good in that game, but... I was saying, ah, it's a shame because he has to come off because he's definitely going to get sent off. And they, they, they didn't take him off. And again, there he was, like his second or his first start since then. And he's just asking for it, crying out to be put out of his misery and sent back to the bench. Yeah, and but to be fair to him, he did have a lot more discipline in the second half. And for those blistering first three minutes of the second half, boy, was El Ghazi on it. Yeah. But unfortunately, he was on the pitch for 70 minutes and just three minutes doesn't cut it anymore. <laughs> but that dive was uh, disgraceful. Probably another bookable offence right there, actually, as well. The tackle didn't even come. I think it was Ward Price. He was just smart enough to realise that he's overrun the ball by 10, 15 metres. He's never getting there. And Elgazi just dropped pearly. Yeah, and it's not even like Ward Price threw in a leg and pulled it back. Ward Price yeah. just stood next to him. <laughs> it's like I used to wind this boy up in training before when he had the ball. But Let him shoot! Let him shoot! <laughs> El Ghazi, let him have it, let him have it. <laughs> the worst thing is when somebody shouts out, he'll give it to you, he'll give it to you. <laughs> I'd no. say El Ghazi gets that all the time. He doesn't want it in there is the, the absolute classic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want it. Uh, second WhatsApp one. John McGinn should be banned from overhead passes that are over 20 meters. <laughs> There's a lot of things that John McGinn should be banned for. That is one of them. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> John McGinn, there was one stage in that game, again, very similar to Mbundia, where he just had a 40-yard sprint out of position to close down the keeper. I mean, there was no press on. Well, apart from the lump from where he was dropped as a baby that's pressing on his prefrontal cortex and scrambling his decision-making skills. <laughs> And it ends up with a three-on-one in the camera because John McGinn has just gone inexplicably herring out of position to close down the fucking goalkeeper. Runs past Watkins to do it. The goalkeeper just passes it out to the centre midfielder. And all of a sudden, it's three-on-one in the camera, five-on-four in our back line. And Southampton end up with another corner. The last thing we fucking needed coming into that game was to give them corners as well. A Man United-esque press. That's the worst thing you can say about Aston Villa. <laughs> yeah, and like this is brought up here. Not nothing specific. Like, I, I can't remember a, a certain pass of John McGinn's just far too often yet again that he's just hammering the ball too long out for a throw-in, trying that ball to the back post that always ends up... You know, in fairness, it often doesn't go out of play for a goal kick, but he just rolls along the byline and somebody has to chase it out to the corner. Um, just standing still well, and this is what happens when you put him in that role as well in that pocket as a number six just standing on the ball and then thinking he's a quarterback and he is the furthest thing from a quarterback because every time he lifts the ball it feels like Villa are losing possession yeah John McGinn is unbelievably careless in possession he's scandalous for the amount of times he gives away the ball and it's always needless as well I mean, you can forgive people for giving away the ball if they're trying something that, if it comes off, it's a goal. But you, you can't be playing centre midfield and just losing the ball every time you fucking have it. Third WhatsApp one. Can people stop saying Dean Smith has never been in this position before as Villa boss? That, <laughs> <laughs> that's not a good record to be talking about. He's never been in this position before. Five losses in a row. I fucking hope he's not. Or he's never been. <laughs> That's like that. Like, of course he hasn't been. He'd be out of a job. It's it's not a. It's it's not like. It's not like he's lost some unbelievable home record that was spanning over three different seasons. You know, this is the first game that Aston Villa have lost at Villa Park in whatever amount of time. Dean Smith 
has never conceded more than one goal away from home. Like, <laughs> an actual good, unique stat. Saying somebody hasn't lost five games in a row. <laughs> It's it's not worth pointing out. Everybody should be taking that as red. This boy's been in a job a long time. He's in charge of a big, rich football club. I hope that he hasn't before lost five games in a row. It actually is surprising that he hasn't lost five games in a row, seeing as, <laughs> seeing as he seems so devoid of ideas, but also seeing as Villa were 19th until the fourth last game of the season two years yeah. ago. It's incredible that they didn't that, that didn't involve a five game run, but don't worry. I mean, after the next five games, he will have been in this position again because he's losing the next five as well. <laughs> Double or nothing. <laughs> um, before we leave WhatsApp, we just we'll do a quick. Ron Saunders, do you want to bet against this quote of the week? This guy who was commentating on Sky Sports is a legend. His name is Seb Hutchinson. Never heard him before. <laughs> he was just trolling Aston Villa all game. So much so that three of his commentary quotes are featuring in this category. The first of them was... <laughs> you'll like this. We've barely even mentioned the Kamba or McGinn's names. <laughs> <laughs> he was just so to the point with everything. Yeah, and that, that is the, the the real big thing from that first half. I actually remember thinking, geez, we got away with having the cap. What, what am I talking about? I don't even remember. I just think we got away with it because I don't remember making any mistakes. He's playing center midfield. <laughs> I just don't remember him. That's absolutely <laughs> disgraceful. Yeah. I think I text you a real a real life WhatsApp one just after he came off 62 minutes and it was just, what was the point of that? <laughs> what <the laughs> What did we get from it? Like, I'm not, I don't want to kick on the canvas and he didn't do anything wrong, but he well he didn't do anything, which is something wrong. Um the second quote from Seb Hutchinson <laughs> again it's uh it's how specific he is here is gold. No changes at half time, El Ghazi still on, Bailey still on <laughs> <laughs> The only thing that quote was lacking was Buendia still on? <laughs> and the last one, this is a clinker now. This isn't really, this is the stat that does all the work for him. But in fairness, it's Hutchinson who does say it. On comes Aston Villa's top goal scorer this season, Cameron Archer. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, but he finishes it off with, hasn't got a goal in the Premier League yet. <laughs> <laughs> This guy gets it. He he knows a bad run when he sees one. And oh, yeah. the only other nomination I have for this uh, category, Dean Smith. We're in a determined mood, that's for sure. <laughs> that was pre-game, by the way. Jesus Christ! If that if that was Villa's determination, like what? You have to be more clear there, Dean. I mean, what were they determined to do? Get absolutely fucking battered and embarrassed for the fifth game in a row. <laughs> I'm sure they're still determined now to go after that magic 10 that you mentioned there. And we'll leave it there. Well, Dean Smith wins that award. That sets us up nicely to actually go into the award categories after this. We're going to start with the thoughts of the Villa podcast. Maybe it was just because I really didn't want to fucking lose to Leeds United. The lifting up of Patrick Bamford with one hand, I did enjoy that because Patrick Bamford is an unlikable character and he's probably been a bit of a twat to Tyrone Mings all game. He's nothing like that either, is he? He's a real. He's, like if you. He's an uh, unlikable character. Like one of he's put on a foot. Patrick Bamford can't skin you. It's, it's not. It's not. He's not that type of player. It's not in his game. Somebody put on a foot there. I felt all the pain. I imagine I probably sound as much of a, a biased, one-eyed idiot. Block the fucking shot. It was a fucking disaster. I did quite enjoy the hopelessness of their their grief with it. Those other still have it. Not that it fucking mattered anyway. Sure, we were beaten anyway. Not that it fucking mattered anyway. Villa was shite. Like there's there's nothing but space. Leeds are going to be spanked a few times this season. Make no mistake about that. I mean. They're, they're really well coached, they're really aggressive, they're really adventurous, 
but the players are shit. <laughs> the, the key line is that we're, we're well coached um, and very aggressive, but our players are shit. They're not either. They're not shit. I mean, that was great. That did have everything. Only downside, those Bromley accents, though, really go through you, don't they? We'll start with the Ronnie Rosenthal Award. I mentioned Emmy Buendia is going to get a few nominations here. The first one is El Ghazi setting Buendia up very early on. Buendia wins it back. El Ghazi gives it back inside to Buendia. Hits it first time. It's low. It's such an easy save. It's not worth talking about. You can come back after the next nomination if you want. Uh, which is El Ghazi's run down the left. This is the first half. He does a Grealish shrug off. And then he slices underneath it. When he has the angle, he has the space. Your man is down on the ground looking at him on his right foot. And he slices underneath it. And he almost hits it out for a throw in. Yeah, that was that was really bad. I don't want to talk about the Bundia one. I don't want to. I don't want to sully the award category with that, <laughs> pretending it was a chance. But uh, the El Ghazi one, it was uh, like you've done everything right there, Amor. This is exactly what you want. This is all you're good for in open play. You've got the ball on your right foot. Put the ball in the fucking net. Open play. Do you, do you know what's amazing? How on earth has El Ghazi never ever? sliced underneath a penalty like that oh it's coming don't worry like we all have a bit of a laugh about how good El Ghazi is at penalties but he's only scored eight he'll miss the next one don't you worry about that eight out of eight he's got a hundred percent penalty record <laughs> I, I don't fucking you know me I don't joke when it comes to El Ghazi's penalties <laughs> that's fair enough I'm just pissed off of him tonight <laughs> uh next nomination Watkins runs down the left. Um, like he gets away from Ward Price, does really well, pulls it back. Buendia comes in on his left foot, just slices it wide. And then another nomination for Buendia, I'll add into that. Buendia 1 2 with Watkins. It's a nice move. It's set up perfectly for him on his right foot. Perfect angle, perfect layoff, perfectly wide. <laughs> yeah, and th- that was a lovely bit of play. And whenever you see something like that, you do feel bad for having so much anger and hatred towards just one little lump. And <laughs> it, it could have been good, but like he, he doesn't get around it anywhere near enough and it sails comfortably wide. I'm not even sure if the keeper dives. The other one I've talked about, Buendia's connection with it, hitting off his ankle and just going out of play, it was pathetic. And the, the really frustrating thing about that was, because that came pretty soon into the first half, yeah. like Watkins does brilliantly into the second half. Watkins does brilliantly. First off, to show just how average Southampton are. Like if you put them under a bit of pressure, they'll also just miss the ball yeah. from time to time. This is their captain. A bit of pressure from our centre forward, and he just misses the ball. And all of a sudden, Aston Villa have a chance. It turns out, had we played with any sort of intensity, had we raised our game to the level of these other players, who aren't any better than you, we might have made a fucking game of it in the first half. And the only other nomination I have, <laughs> I don't know if it should be a nomination, is Tyrone Mings's effort <laughs> on his left foot from... If it's Buendia again, it's a nice cutback. And actually, it was... Um, I think it was Bailey that played it to Buendia. So probably the only thing that Bailey did as well. But uh, Buendia cuts it back very sharply. And there's big Tyrone Mings standing there ready to lash at it of his left foot. Big Tyrone Mings in his free roll in the first <laughs> 10 minutes of the second half. It was absolutely... <laughs> And then there was people criticising Dean Smith for having no ideas. There's a fucking idea for you. Play Tyrone Mings in a free roll from centre half. That was absolute insanity. And it was once he skied that over the top that everyone just decided, let's let's just let him play centre half again. That was, that was fun while it lasted. And I suppose in the spirit of, of that being nominated, I don't want any Villa fans really to think that like Jesus we did have a lot of openings Southampton had better chances than us there are three nominations here for Southampton I'll rattle through Armstrong who scored do you remember this one in the first half early on at the back post from a corner we had about 20 players I'm not exaggerating about 20 of our players were all over at the near post just desperately protecting this near post and 
Armstrong was standing completely free, fell down to him on a volley. Like Martinez did well to get over quickly, but he should have scored and he ballooned it over. Yeah, it was really bad. It was the other Armstrong, Stuart Armstrong. Yeah, it was. Um, oh, yeah, you're right. It was an absolutely dreadful connection. And his reaction was so strange. His reaction just seemed to say, well, well, what did you want me to do? Yeah. <laughs> Hit the ball? <laughs> Connect with it in any way other than that? You're so close. It's amazing you managed to miss so badly. Take a touch. Do whatever you want. You, you literally can do anything you want here. Because as you said, every Aston Villa player, they weren't even at the front, but they were past their front post. <laughs> Yeah, they gave him the whole box to work with. <laughs> and maybe that was our defensive strategy. Let this guy have a bit of time. He'll get a touch of the Theo Walcotts and just drill it over the bar. Uh, I don't know why when you said that. I think it was because it was a corner, wasn't it? Um, I remember Theo Walcott's goal against Everton. That looked to have relegated us two years ago. Um, so it actually just sent a wee shiver down my spine. That's when we had to beat Arsenal then. It looked like we had balls that up. We'd lost a, a victory against Everton and that Theo Walcott scored a fucking header. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> I guess that was suppressed in there somewhere. <laughs> um, and then two Emmy Martinez saves, two brilliant Emmy Martinez saves. James Ward-Prowse is teed up at the edge of the box. It connects with it brilliantly. Buendi is watching on. <laughs> Martinez Martinez gets a good save and then the second one is Shea Adams header right into the top corner Martinez good save yeah I mean Emmy Martinez is such a good goalkeeper had he not saved the War Price one I would have been unbelievably annoyed at him it looks a lot better because he goes to the wrong hand he goes with the overhand but the the Shea Adams one is an absolutely incredible save that I was just watching that and I was just I had just given up like I just decided it was a goal We've all seen the ball arc from that header so many times in our lives of watching football. And they always nestle into the net unless you've got Big Emmy there. What was uh, the biggest chance or what should have been scored most? Uh, El Ghazi's one where he shrugged your man to the ground and slices it wide or Buendia's when it's just teed up for him 17 yards out and he doesn't even get any sort of whip in it. He just kicked it straight out. Yeah, I think I think you'd have to split the award this year. <laughs> congratulations boys okay the you like them we didn't take a 90th minute penalty award the set piece in the first half Matt Cash up to Tyro Mings at the top left corner of the pitch he cushions the header out for a throw <laughs> I mean how often are we going to see like you know we, we all enjoyed our bit of improvisation from set pieces but Nah, not like this isn't good enough anymore. We're heading the ball out for throw-ins too often. I think this really shows you just how bad Aston Villa were at set pieces last year. That whenever we saw anything remotely different this season, we were like, oh my God, we've sorted it out. We've got a set piece routine. We've got one set piece routine. Even that's, that's a plenty. Turns out all we did have was one set piece routine. And it was just whipping it into the front post. Then we tried that 15 times against Chelsea and it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, it was against Spurs when they had everybody standing. On the Spurs, front yeah. And yeah. then we stopped doing that and now we've got nothing, it seems, apart from kicking the ball out of play. Off, <laughs> sometimes off Tyrone Mings' head, sometimes not, just to keep it fresh. <laughs> Second nomination, we've already talked about at the top of the show, 4-2-3-1. Brings out the worst in the Kanban McGinn. It's not worth getting a number 10 into the team because of all the things you're losing um third and, nomination and because of who the number 10 is yeah exactly like that you know if if you had somebody that was if you had jack Grealish there it might be worth what you're losing from john mcginn the third nomination keenan davis on for el Ghazi. but the worst thing about that was that it meant watkins moved out to the left of a 4-4-2 yeah i mean <laughs> That, that was a strange decision. I, I thought El Ghazi had grown into the game quite a bit. And just to see, it's so depressing to see, get into position. Our winger's got the ball now, and then you realise it's Ollie Watkins. He's almost certainly going to have to come on to his right foot, so the momentum has has subsided a little bit. But also, who's he passing it to now? If yeah. You've just got your best player passing the ball. You know, to get a goal-scoring opportunity, he has to pass it to somebody who's much worse our player you wanted in the box is no longer going to be in the box for the remaining 10 minutes of the game. Give it up. 
And the only other nomination I have is leaving Bailey on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there were so many opportunities that he had there. I mean, El Ghazi, Buendia, Bailey, they all had to come off in the first half. So we can give Smith a bit of leeway. I mean, he needed to hold the sub back in case of injury and he froze. And it's mad because he's seen this happen before. I mean, he tried to see out the game against Arsenal when he had obviously cocked up and that blew up in his face spectacularly. And we knew this was coming. And like after 10 minutes, you knew something had to change. And I can understand wanting to let the game calm down. But after another, the next 10 minutes in... It was it was unrelenting for the rest of the game, and it was just it just kept going, and it was the same thing over and over again. And to cling on for forty five minutes again is so stupid. I mean, Algazi had given him every opportunity if, to excuse the excuse he needed to change the player. Yeah, if he didn't have the balls, so. exactly. If he didn't have the balls to do it himself, he could have said, "Amar, you're going to get yourself sent off." So that was an that that could have just saved him from himself there, but. Bailey had to come off. He had to come off a lot earlier. He had to come off at half time. He was absolutely disastrous from a defensive perspective. And on the ball, he was giving us absolutely nothing. All he was given on the ball was Southampton possession. <laughs> like honestly, it was scandalous how how much he gave away the ball. Like I I, I really hope that somebody's sitting down with him or pointing a finger aggressively at him at full time to say do you understand what just happened out there? Do you, like, <laughs> do you appreciate how much you gave the ball away? Like, that's that's not good enough. Like, if you keep, I don't care how much money we spent on you. If anybody else played like that, they would be out of the team now for a long time. Yeah, and like the way he was losing the ball as well. It's not like you know he was he was so ponderous and then losing the ball, so he had ruined the attack anyway by stopping and then trying to go again. The ball getting caught under his feet, Romeo just coming in and taking it off him as if he was a child. There was there were so many things wrong with Bailey's performance and how he went about <laughs> losing the ball that it was incredibly frustrating. The, the worst thing about Dean Smith not changing was like he had a backup. He had an idea of how to change it and one that worked and one that we could see before the game would give us much more of a chance against this very predictable Southampton team. And he did it in the second half, and not doing it before that was just baffling. I still think the winner here is is going back to a four two three one yet again, trying that out, see how it would work. Um, I thought the good news was that Jacob Ramsey wasn't injured after the last game, and we could have played that middle three. We could have like John McGinn can be our best player some games, and it's always when there's three in the middle. So like he's he's never been one of our best players when he's playing in a holding two. So you're taking away from him and you're losing out in Jacob Ramsey. You're losing out in the structure of having three midfielders, which, as you say, was important because the way it panned out was we had four defenders, two people helping out, and then four lads up top not doing anything. It was The, the, the pitch was completely split there. The team was completely divided. If you had to play those three, you had an extra body back there. And once more, we've said it twice now, but... We did all that just to try and suit Emmy Windia. Yeah, exactly. And from a defensive perspective as well, if you have Ramsey and McGinn on, they can help out the fullbacks. They can pull the cross. They can shuffle in. If McGinn is going to help out Cash, then Ramsey and Nakamla can move into centre midfield. So if Hampton can't switch the play that often, that quickly, so then you can shuffle back across to the other side. It's all very elementary stuff. It's, it's not, playing against a four-four-two is not that difficult. You make it difficult for yourself. By playing with three forwards who can't defend. <laughs> the Peter Enkelman What the Fuck Award. I only have two nominations here. Amwar El Ghazi missed a header on a ball that was dropping, I'm not lying, onto his nipple. He, he ducked down and he tried to flick it on on challenge. There was nobody behind him close enough and he missed the ball. Like it, it, The ball bounced, it, it skimmed down his back and bounced behind him. Yeah, I mean, the best attempt at a header that Amor El Ghazi ever had was in the playoff final where the ball also hit off his back and <laughs> maybe he thinks that's the best way to header the ball, Connor. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's still just once that he's won a header that I can remember. There was even a time there, did you see uh, 
a ball, a ball was just popped out for him onto his head on the left wing, and he had he did get his head to this one, and the ball like went up above him and bounced behind, almost went out for a throw in. Somebody saved it from going out. I think it was McGinn or somebody like that, but um, just couldn't control a little flighted ball onto his forehead. God love him. And the, the only other nomination. This was so bad that actually didn't even get into the Rossenthal Award. Ball sits up for Matt Cash on the half volley. How's your left foot? How's your left foot? He falls on his hoop instead. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so pathetic. And I, I think maybe we'll be coming on to the volume meter. I don't know what your what your plans are for the next part of the show, but like Matty Cash is the only player I would have in any sort of danger of going up, and the only outfield player. I thought he was quite good, and for him to do that, and he looked so depressed afterwards, he knew exactly what he had just done, and so did everyone else. He had just made a fucking tit of himself. Well, let's go, Vimeometer. Give me your case for Matt Cash going up. Like Matt Cash was firefighting the whole game. Like he, yeah. he had to defend against two players, and two of Southampton's better players, obviously, because they had so much space. But like he was... He was largely effective in it. He got skinned once, which was really, really irritating. And I think the ball got pulled back. And I think that might have been the one that ended up in War Prowse's shot. But other than that, he had so much to do. And he did most of it really, really competently. And to defend at that level when you're so overworked to consistently do it, because once your legs go... Once your brain goes, then as well, because you can't you can't trust yourself. You can't trust yourself to make the right decisions, or to sorry to get there. So then you start making bad decisions. But Matty Cash didn't let that happen to him. I have one more suggestion for somebody going up, and that's Tyrone Mings for not only realizing that Watkins shouldn't be leaving instructions, literally lying around the pitch, but but asking for him to give him the instructions so he can put it into his sock. You know, rather than send to Watkins. You had it last. You put it in your fucking sock. <laughs> that could have been a situation, but Mings just took it off him and put it in his own sock. That I thought that was a, a show of a leader there. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly, yeah. It was just like, how fucking brain dead is Ollie Watkins? I mean, we're in so much trouble here. All year from set pieces as well. It's James Ward fucking Proust that's on them. These instructions are important. Don't be just lying them around. This is our only fucking hope. Of getting out of here without conceding four or five goals from a set piece. Let's sort this out. Going down, Amar Gazi for that dive alone, like it's pathetic. Don't want to see that. Um, going down, Leon Bailey mentioned his defensive work. It's actually worse than Bertie Tees, who started getting really tuned in um, by the second half of last season in terms of defensive work. But also, Leon Bailey took a shot from 35 yards out from a standing position. Like that, that, that sort of set the tone. It was the one time he didn't lose the ball, in fairness, in the tackle. But he just <laughs> shot from a position he was never going to score. Bounced in front of the keeper who fell on it. Yeah, Liam Bailey was, was horrible. And the, the, the thing about Bertrand Trory is Bertrand Trory never had any difficulty in getting back. Like He always got back. He was just absolutely useless when he got back there. His brain <laughs> would just freeze. He wouldn't see people running past his fucking face. But like he, oh, he had a, an unbelievable appetite to get back. And Leon Bailey in the first half wasn't even trying to get back. And that's the thing that's really galling. He had one desperate run back in the in the second half. And it was it was a possibly a, a goal-saving um, a track back. And he won the ball as well, to his credit. But that was once in 90 minutes. And he had a lot of fucking running back he could have been doing that he just didn't. Questions we can't answer, but probably will. We talked about that note that was being passed around there with the instructions on it. What was written on that note? Knock, knock. <laughs> Who's there? Not me, because I'm getting fucking sacked if you keep this nonsense up. <laughs> I can't top that. The only the only thing I had uh, in terms of actual tactical instructions that that um, you conceivably might have been on the note was give the ball to Salisu. <laughs> he was our only avenue to any sort of chance. Yeah, yeah, that that would be the note if Watkins 
had written it out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why Watkins was looking at it for so long. He's like, it doesn't look, why does it not say that? And then just tossed it down on the turf with disdain. All right, second question we can answer. How does Diego Simeone do it? <laughs> how, do, how does he do it? I like you know. I get that he's had success, but like I mean, over this long of time, does he not get a bit bored? Does he not get a bit morally conscious? <laughs> like, does he not look at himself in the mirror and think, like you know, is this the best use of my time, or you know? Am I bringing anything new to the world or anything good to the world anymore? It's just, it's ugly stuff that I would respect if it was over a shorter period of time. Is the fact that he's just been doing it, churning it out year in year. It's a factory of ugliness, and he is just <laughs> devoted to that place that he's never leaving it. Yeah, I mean, he's he is a wanker, so maybe that helps explain it a little bit. Um, <laughs> The other thing I say, his target in Amani worked out well for him, didn't it? That was an absolutely ridiculous decision that blew up in his face and I <laughs> couldn't be happier for him. But I, I, I do have to say, to maintain this style for so long and not get bored is impressive. And <laughs> yeah. I think it really, really is. And, and to convince talented players to buy into it is also really, really impressive. But... To be as successful as he has been is actually really impressive. I mean, he's in a league with three teams and they are the little brawler. And to have won the league twice in his, I think it's nine seasons, is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that's as many as Real Madrid have managed in the same time. <laughs> and he's he's always finished in the top three and he's he's won a couple of Europa Leagues. He's been to a couple of Champions League finals. I mean, it, it's a really incredibly successful stint. So I'm sure that keeps him going back to the well. I mean, you think about his football, there are probably three really important things. I mean, the first is that no matter how much it is weighted towards solidity, aggression, defensiveness, being a cunt, whenever Atletico have the ball, they also have a plan yeah. and they also play football, which is unbelievably important when you only have the ball for 30% of the game. I mean, it's, it's more important because you've only got it for that amount of time. And that was the truly frustrating thing of the last 10 years of Irish football. I mean, I would have accepted Trapattoni, O'Neill, McCarthy, pretending that Georgia were better than us and sitting back and conceding the game. But I probably wouldn't have, but stay with me. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if, if their plan to score a goal wasn't to hope to score a goal, I mean, if you're going to decide to have the ball for 30 of the 90 minutes, then you better also have decided what you're going to do with the fucking ball for those 30 minutes. Yeah. And to be fair, like Atletico do do that. And the other two things that are really closely related, if you're going to play this football, it has to be successful. And the fans also have to have been bought into it. And the atmosphere in Madrid two weeks ago for the Liverpool game is, is the most intense I've ever seen, I think. I mean... I've never, I don't think I've ever heard an atmosphere like it. You couldn't hear the Champions League anthem <laughs> at the start. You could, like, literally couldn't hear it. The camera was panning down the players and I didn't know what was going on. All you could hear was just this cacophony of fans just screaming. It was insane. <laughs> so like, they, they, they've either bought into it or they're all just as mad as Diego Simeone. <laughs> so I think that is what is the most fascinating thing about all this. It's the, it's the energy like you know to to wage war every single day probably twice a week it's it's crazy like and, and yeah to whip up that frenzy all around him as well and being able to do it every single time to walk out into the stadium or any stadium it's 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 it's, it's theater it's drama but it's non-stop like people talked about remember when the documentary the last dance came out and everyone was pointing out like you know how, how does michael jordan keep finding something to feel slighted by by an opponent like you know he's using this for motivation but surely surely that gets tiring but we were we were seeing a very small sample size michael jordan in reality was probably doing that eight nine ten times a year over 80 90 game seasons 
so he was doing it when he had to get himself up. Diego Simeone is doing it twice a week. I assume he's doing it every single day in training. And he is he is a master. He's not just doing it for himself. He, is, he, he creates enemies everywhere. He hates everybody. So much, so much anger, aggression, passion into everything he's doing. But he's able to conjure that feeling amongst thousands of other people like you know what i'm actually talking myself around into really <laughs> and were it not for the fact that he's an absolute wanker i would respect him as well next one can you believe the neck on some people reporting that tyro mings was furious after being dropped I'm not even getting at Tyrone Mings for being furious after he's being dropped. I'm getting at anybody making this out to be a big story. You know, would we would we do the same if Amwar El Ghazi was was furious at being dropped? Like if anybody read that story where it came out and said, you know, Marvis Nakamba is unhappy at being dropped by Dean Smith, people would just be like, Shut the fuck up. <laughs> get, get on with it. But the Tyrone Mings thing, I know he's the club captain, but like we've got four centre halves all around the same level apart from Konza and uh, and he hasn't been playing well so like, what? why would that be such a big deal that Tyrone Mings is now unhappy to, like, tell him to suck it up he's still in the England squad because like even despite all this well exactly like what is the story the press think they're publishing here like England international club captain Adonis multi-millionaire has ego like <laughs> big fucking surprise and Tyrone Mings should have been fuming. He should have been fuming with Smith over the fact that he wasn't dropped sooner. I mean, as, as club captain, Tyrone Mings should have been banging on Dean Smith's door and asking, why are you continually picking someone who has been so far below the required standard? What do I have to do to get dropped? <laughs> and there are a few things that Tyrone Mings should be furious with, but it's his performance levels this season, the litany of errors that he's made that have contributed to goals and the ones he's gotten away with. His lack of leadership in games, particularly the Wolves game. But he shouldn't be annoyed at Smith for being dropped. It should have been far too obvious to Tyrone Mings that that was coming. And look, Tyrone Mings was good tonight. Tyrone Mings was the player that he can be for Aston Villa. And that is, once again, the reason we fucking hate it when he's not. Because we know how brilliant he can be. That's all fair. I'll move on to the next one. I think you've wrapped it up pretty well there. <laughs> the next one is like deja vu what is Gareth Southgate's problem <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying this when Jack Grealish isn't on the Villa team you know it seems like he just needs a punching bag a very talented punching bag to get him through his days and now it's on per Mason Greenwood what, what's he said to Mason Greenwood? <laughs> well, he's just continually not picking him. Like he's, he obviously should be around England squad. Like Mason Greenwood is he's fucking amazing as it is. He's going to get even better and even better. So if Kit has brought in young people before for this very reason, um, he, I feel like he's been sinking Mason Greenwood a little bit because of a conversation they had before the September international. So it would have been August. And Mason Greenwood was talking about wanting to establish himself in the United team. I, I, I just, I get the feeling that was a private conversation, first and foremost. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like anybody else needs to know that. But now here we are in November, uh, three camps since then, and Southgate is, is saying that you know Greenwood didn't want to be in the squad. Like, I tell you, I tell if Mason Greenwood really thinks that he'd be better off focusing. You know, train him with Donny van der Beek. Well, he's probably in the Holland squad, actually. So train him with train him with Phil Jones. Um, <laughs> gee, I'm letting I'm letting Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer now corrupt me about Donny van der Beek. <laughs> but like his chances of being a Man United regular would be drastically improved by playing on the England squad. And he's good enough. You go through the list of players that, that they have there. They're obviously good. England have an amazing squad. But Greenwood should be there. But like you know, first. Firstly, Southgate just shouldn't be talking about it and divulging such detail about a conversation they had months ago. Yeah, look, we need to stop getting ourselves worked up about Gareth Southgate's decisions. We know he's not very good at decision making. <laughs> Southgate left Aston Villa to take the next step. Like he left in his own words because he wanted to achieve something in his career. He signed for fucking Middlesbrough. 
<laughs> that is brilliant research that you've done there. <laughs> That's amazing. We we know he's not a fan of talent as well, and having Greenwood in there though would be it'd be pointless anyway. Like we all know that if England are playing anyone of note, then Mason Mount will be in the front three. That leaves one space for Grealish, Foden, Sterling, Rashford, and Saka to battle it out. Like I would have Greenwood ahead of probably the latter three on and on form, probably Grealish as well. But it's almost irrelevant. I mean, only one of them's going to play, and only one of them's going to get brought on in the game. Yeah. So, look, he might as well go and train with Phil Jones and just get his confidence up. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe Mason Greenwood is just way smarter than I'm giving him credit for, and he understands that. Like, if I do go there, I'm traveling down to London for a start, and I'm going through all that training. I, I like being around Carrington, um, and yeah, I might get a minute in two or three of the games yeah like actually do you know what Gareth Southgate's off the hook Mason Greenwood is bang on (laughs) last one why would you not trust Eddie Howe with a big pile of money (laughs) (laughs) Do do you remember I said I predicted on this very podcast Divock Origi to Newcastle for 30 million well the worst thing that happened to Liverpool Football Club over the last few years was Burnmouth getting relegated. <laughs> <laughs> they were no longer offloading their dead wood for unbelievable amounts of money. Um, Eddie Howe was gone, Burnmouth were gone. Well, guess what, lads? <laughs> Eddie Howe's back and he's got a bigger checkbook. And you've got <laughs> Devok Origi there, ready and willing. Forget the 30 million. Like, let's talk 50 and we'll start there. <laughs> Newcastle is going to spend big here. Like, just go through. Like, I, I didn't really. He spent two hundred and sixty million uh, at Bournemouth. Um, like, you think? Like, it, it, look, look, let's get, <laughs> let's uh, qualify. As Eddie Howe, he's obviously a good coach. He's obviously a decent manager. Well, he's done, he's done a decent job so far. Um, the two hundred and sixty million. Um, and that's that's on forty four players as well. So it's, it's actually a big average as well at a small club. And you go through the list. Of, of some of the big signings. Jefferson Larma, 25 million. Nathan Aki, 20 million. He worked out well and he got a profit on him. Dominic Solanke, 19 million. Jordan Ibe, 16 million. Philip Billing, 15 million. Uh, the D- Diego Rico, 13.5 million. Lloyd Kelly, 13.3 million. Chris Metham, 12.2 million. Like it just okay. goes on and on and on and on. Like it's it's unbelievable. There's so many. Nine millions, eight millions, ten millions. It's it's crazy the amount of money he spent. And now he is being put in charge of the richest club in the world, probably now. Um, or definitely with the, the biggest resources to spend money on transfers. And, and he's in charge at a club where nobody else seems to have a fucking clue about football. <laughs> yeah, they gave Jesus by signing Abe and Solanke, they gave Liverpool the money they needed for Salah. fucking hell to be fair like i i only have fond memories of how up until the point they decided to take a load of blood money but the the fondness isn't based on him being a young progressive manager doing mediocre things with little old burnmouth or having the audacity as an englishman to ask his teams to play a bit of ball (laughs) they're all centered around they're all centered around that three-day period when football came back Wednesday night, Orion Nyland was so shocked that he caught a football. He ended up fainting and fell into his own net. But we got away with it. And then on Saturday night, I was so pathetic and so worried that I watched Burnmouth versus Crystal Palace. And I just remember thinking, Jesus, we could actually be all right here. There's hope. I actually think the next day we lost to Chelsea and we didn't win any of our next five. But, but Eddie Howe kept pace of us on our so slow fucking bicycle race. <laughs> but it was that moment that I realised it's not just us that are absolutely dreadful. We can do this. Bournemouth are also shite. There are eight games left. That gives Watford a chance to change their manager three or four times. We might be okay here. <laughs> like, he, yeah. he, was, like he was, to be fair, like five years to keep that team in, to, in the Premier League was was impressive and they stick these principles while doing it as well and continuing to play football but their time would come by the time they got relegated and 
there are only so many fourth choice Liverpool attackers you can sign for twenty million to do fuck all for you before you have to accept your fate, really. <laughs> and now Liverpool are improved. You'd think that normally those players are out of his reach, but now he's at Newcastle with a big budget. Those players are right back in within his reach. Get ready, lads. Go through the squad. You are offloading this summer. Um, and that's it another podcast another defeat another do you know what we cried about it last time but here we are another international break <laughs> <laughs> we cried about a Villa we're going alright we had a bit of hope geez how long is a month in football uh, Ireland we're going terribly since then Ireland won twice they hammered two teams back to back I can't remember the last time they've ever done that um, Villa have gotten worse 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 and worse Ireland are suddenly exciting the game but come see me after they play Portugal and we'll talk to him. Thanks a million for listening, and we will see you next time. All the best. That wind is calling my name. And I-